From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. After a baby is born, the umbilical cord is cut and usually discarded as medical waste along with the placenta. But umbilical cord blood is rich in stem cells, which have been used to fight leukemia, lymphoma, and some 80 other life-threatening diseases. The Upstate Cord Blood Bank is a public cord blood bank that collects and stores donated umbilical cord blood. And with me in the HealthLink on Air studio is its medical director, Dr. Matthew Elkins. Let's start with the news um, that parents who deliver at Krauss Hospital can voluntarily donate their baby's umbilical cord blood to the cord blood bank now, right? Yes, That's we're a- thrilled. This is our second site. So we started where the, our cord bank is actually located next to community, our community campus. And that was the first location that we worked out a lot of the kinks. So uh, people who've been delivering at community since 2017 have been able yep. to donate. Since okay. February 2017, we've been able to collect donations there at community. Kraus is our first expansion, so it's the, the first time we're adding a, another hospital, and we're thrilled to be able to provide that. Um, Kraus has been great. The staff and the faculty and the patients have all been really thrilled to have this opportunity there. Well, tell us how the donation works. Um, this is something parents have to think about and decide on ahead of time, right? Ideally. Um, that was one of the, we talked about working out the kinks. That was one of the kinks that we had at Community was having this whole discussion when mom comes in when she's in labor, and that's a bad idea. She has other things other on things her mind. Other things going on, right. A little bit. Um, so we have actually made a uh, booklet that we are asking for all of our providers to hand out ahead of time so that mom and dad and family and whoever um, have time to really think about it and plan and consider if that's what they want to do. We don't want... We don't want anyone pressured into or out of donations. So ahead, of, as much ahead of time, as simple language as possible, and uh, providing our staff to answer any questions that, that uh, parents might have. So we're thrilled to be able to now offer it to the population that are getting that are delivering at Krauss. So ideally it becomes part of the, a woman's birth plan, mm-hmm. but there's not an impact on labor and delivery. This no. happens after, right? No. So what happens is... Um, Mom goes into labor, and I don't want to gloss over that, but uh, (laughs) once baby is born, there is time when the placenta is still attached. Um, The the umbilical cord is clamped and cut from baby, and there's still time where we're waiting for the placenta to release, and that's the time when if umbilical cord wants to be donated, it can be donated then. So um, again, not not to oversimplify it, but the whoever is doing the birthing, whether it is a midwife or physician, they're just waiting for that placenta to detach. Trying to pull it off early is a bad idea. So while they're waiting there, that's the perfect time to actually collect the, the blood that's in the still in the umbilical cord and in the placenta, which would otherwise just be thrown away as waste and collect it. We are we have a process set up with uh, both the nursing staff at Kraus and at, with community to get that set and packaged and sent over to our cord bank where we would process it, um, do all the testing, do all the evaluation, um, and hopefully have a unit that's set to help somebody else. So there's no uh, needle stick to the baby at all. The blood's not coming from the baby. It comes from once you've cut the umbilical cord, it comes from the other side. Yeah, it comes from the umbilical cord and the placenta. So it's not mom's blood. This is not, and it's not the umbilical cord. There's no pain for mom or for baby because this is on the placental cord that's not innervated to either mom or baby at this point. 
Now, can this be done if you have a C-section delivery Absolutely. as well? Okay. Actually, we get some of our best units from our C-sections, interestingly. We're not sure why. Um, but the same, the, the same uh, delivery, whether it's a vaginal delivery or C-section, there is still going to be that time when baby's out, cord's cut, and you're waiting for the placenta to detach. You have to wait for it to detach. Otherwise, it, if you try to pull too hard, it can rip apart and mom bleeds and it's bad. So you've got that delay. During that delay... If mom wants to donate it, um, that's a perfect time to collect it. All right. Now, once you have the cord blood and it's um, taken back to the cord blood bank, wh- what do you do with it? You, yeah. it? It's stored there, but how do you how do you go about storing it? How do you categorize it? Right. What testing do you do? So there's a number of steps that go into place, but just to simplify it down, um, the main things we want to do are... Make sure that it's a good unit, which means there's enough stem cells that it would be clinically useful to transplant. A one cell isn't enough. There has to be a, a not enough that there is a good therapeutic dose for a patient. So we want to make sure that there's enough of them. We want to make sure they're viable. So we actually grow up some of them to show that they actually make all of the cell elements of the blood. We also want to make sure that it's safe, though. So we actually do sterility testing um, there in the in the in our cord bank to make sure that that unit doesn't have bacteria. Because if somebody gets a bone marrow transplant, the last thing they need is exposure to other infectious agents. Is other, that like the testing that's done on like if you donate mm-hmm. blood? So we do all of the same testing and more. Okay. Um, and then we all the other thing we want to do is we get a unit of a few hundred mLs of blood. We don't want to freeze all of that because. We don't want the plasma. We don't want the red cells. What we really want is just the stem cells. So we actually will autom- we'll have an automated system that will get it down to just the stem cells in about 30 mLs. And that's in a smaller cartridge that we can freeze in a controlled fashion, least amount of damage to the cells. Then we'll prepare the cells for, for freezing, freeze them and store them in our liquid nitrogen tanks um, so that we can retrieve them later if it's needed. Uh, indefinitely? Can they so, stay there forever? Uh, we can't legally say it's indefinite because we've only been doing cord banking for about 23 years now. And we do have some of those earliest ones that have been thought out. And at 21 years, they were fine. And we know from other research studies that once you freeze things in liquid nitrogen, all cellular processes stop. And so time has stopped for those cells. So in a real way, yes, it's indefinite. Legally, 21 years. Okay. <laughs> and then right. in four years, when they thaw out some more, we'll be able to say 25 years. 25 years. <laughs> this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Medical Director for Upstate's Cord Blood Bank, Dr. Matthew Elkins. Now, let's talk about why a family might want to donate mm-hmm. the, the cord blood. Is it is it pure altruism? That is, that is the only thing we can guarantee is that you will feel altruistic. Um, it really is a donation, just like donating whole blood at a Red Cross blood drive or some other um, blood supplier's blood drive. It truly is a donation. Um, and, and, the, and there's no charge? There's no mm-hmm. fee? There, there is no charge to, to mom or the family. There is no insurance charge for this collection. There's also no payment. So, again, the only thing I can promise is they'll feel good. Um the uh, so there's no reimbursement, there's no cost. Um, why would they want to? It really is altruism, and again, this is something that's just going to get thrown away. It's not that it would be going somewhere else, or it's not making 
uh, impacting the health of baby or of mom. So I guess it comes down to why wouldn't you? Now, what if later on in life, you your child, um, whose umbilical cord blood was donated, needs stem cells mm-hmm. for some reason? Are they able to come back and retrieve them? So there, and we encourage that. We've talked with a lot of um, donors about this. If they get into that situation, they're welcome to call back. And if we do have that cord blood unit, and it hasn't been distributed, and we have it stored and saved. We will make we will set that aside and make it available for that person. The downside of that is if it's not, if it wasn't tagged for them and, and flagged for them at the time of donation, it might have gone already gone out to help somebody else. So it might not be there, um, which we'd feel terrible at that point. But that that is it is a donation. Um, there is in the industry there is private donations. There are other companies. We are hoping to offer this as well in the future, but we are not at this point. And that is a private donation that is a separate contract where the cord blood is collected and the family pays for that to be stored for their use only. Um, and if that's if that's what the parents want to do, I'm all for it. Um, we want to we want to offer this service for the people who don't want to privately bank it instead of it being thrown away. Um, let's make it available for somebody else to use. If uh, if we do make if, if a family does make a donation um, and it's later used to help someone, mm-hmm. it, do they get notified? We actually don't at this point. Um, one because there is confidentiality confidentiality issues. Sure. Um, once we distribute that through uh, an organization like National Merit Donors Program or some of the other uh, listing agencies that that uh, match up the right person with the right unit. Um, that is really anonymized. We don't know about the recipient. They don't know about the donor um, because it really does, according to the federal guidelines at the FDA, it has to be anonymized. And we want to protect the anonymity of both the donor, baby, and also recipient. Um, we have had people call back and ask for updates. Um, we usually just thank them for their donation and tell them we're we're going to make sure it's used in the best way possible, but we can't really give out details. So if I make a donation, mm-hmm. um, those stem cells could eventually go somewhere else in the world? Yes, absolutely. So it's a, an international... Yes, uh, it, it depends. We've got There are multiple registries, so we don't, uh, through the cord bank, we don't actually contact transplant centers directly. There are groups like the National Marrow Donors or World Donor, uh, Blood Donors Worldwide, there's multiple that actually maintain registries, and they talk with transplant centers, identify patients who need uh, transplants and need a source of new stem cells, and then they contact us. So we, we actually will upload one, uh, units that are appropriate for transplant. We'll upload into their system and say, we have these available, and then they actually run the system to match up. Oh, we've got a new patient. Let's look through the registry, and if the one that matches, that makes the most sense, is the one that you donated, that's when that would be matched up, and that's when they would contact us. We would send that out and be used. So it's similar with blood typing. It has to match yeah. um, blood type and other things too, right? Yes, it's just much, it's actually harder to match, because for blood typing, there's there's four blood types. There's A, B, O, and AB. Um, well, See, my other hat is transfusion, so you got me on that. Uh, so that's relatively easy to match. So here in the hospital, we will get in a bunch of A's, and that can be matched to A's. 
But for bone marrow transplant, it's actually the human leukocyte antigen, HLA. It's also called MHC, major histocompatibility, because we like giving lots of names to confuse people. Uh, but that has to be matched, and that is much more difficult to match. Instead of there just being four possibilities, there's thousands on thousands of possibilities. That's why it's so hard to find that correct match, but the better match, the better the outcome for the patient. So that's why we we have we want to participate in this worldwide community of cord blood banks to increase the number of available units so that when that person needs one, there will be a match that's the best possible for them. So you need um, the most diverse pool of donors as you can find so that you have a broader means to maybe fill yes. need. And that, that is actually a major need because um, there, there are other sources for um, blood stem cells. Uh, there are adult donor stem cells that can be collected via apheresis, which is another one of my hats, or via bone marrow. So bone marrow transplants, you can get them from adults. Uh, what, we, what we see nationwide and worldwide, uh, but particularly in the U.S., is there are a lot of donors that are Caucasian. We don't see representation from minorities to the same extent that we see the national demographic. So for people who are of any ethnic minority, their likelihood that they will find an adult donor is much less. And that's where the, the greater variability from cord blood, and cord blood is also a little more permissive because it's young, um, that uh, provides another um, option for those people to be able to find a correct match. Because unfortunately, the, when we talk medically, the difference between def- different ethnicities is not just skin deep. These HLAs have different frequencies in different ethnic backgrounds. I see. And then people who are mixed racial ethnicities, they may have a very unique HLA mix that we can't find anywhere else. Wow. Well, let me ask you, is there any uh, mother who should not donate stem cells? Yeah. And we do. We have a very, a very short list of who we don't want to donate. Um, And that is because we want the focus to be on mom. So anytime there is a risk of mom, risk of baby. So we're right now we have four criteria. We have if mom is uh, less than 36 weeks, because if it's early in pregnancy, if it's a preemie, that delivery at that time, we we don't want to, again, we don't want to interfere with mom's health or baby's health. So don't worry about cord blood at that point. Preemies are need a lot of extra care. Um, same thing, if there's been pr- no prenatal care, um, so mom's just showing up in delivery in the in the hospital, one, we don't want a decision like this made rashly. Uh, okay, we don't want to dissuade people, but she's got other stuff on her mind. And we also don't know if there have been other testing or anything else. We don't have anything back to look at. Um, third one is if there is, if there's more than one baby, on this pregnancy, so if they're twins, triplets up to octuplets, I hope we don't see any more octuplets, um, at that point, all of those twins, this is not 100%, but many twins at birth are kind of like preemies because they've been fighting for a small amount of space and a smaller amount of blood. Um, we focus on them. And the last one actually has to do with the fact that we are um, we uh, submit ourselves through the Institutional Review Board 
at both Upstate and Krauss and now, and at St. Joe's when we go there, each of the places. And one of the requirements is adults are 18 and older, less than 18. There is a hard and firm legal line there, and there is uh, correctly concern about younger patients for any sort of research or any sort of donations that they would be an at-risk population. So if mom's coming in and is delivering at 17, there's nothing wrong with her cord blood cells, but because we're under IRB, it has to be 18 and older. Okay, gotcha. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Medical Director for Upstate's Cord Blood Bank, Dr. Matthew Elkins. Now, as I understand it, um, the Upstate Cord Blood Bank is one of only two public cord cord blood banks in New York State. What is the service area for our cord blood bank? So, um, so you're correct. There are only two cord blood banks. The other one is down on uh, in New York City, and they take public cord blood, cord blood collections from two New York hospitals and one in Pennsylvania. Here in, um, I believe it's Pennsylvania, it might be connected, somewhere else. Uh, for us, for the Upstate Cord Blood Bank, we are currently only taking collections at Community, and we just started at Kraus. Uh, last month, that was June, if you're listening to the podcast later. Um, so we just started taking collections at Kraus, and we are hoping to expand and take collections at St. Joe's in the near future. And then there's a lot of you know rural mm-hmm. hospitals in this mm-hmm. upstate New York, um, and that might be in the future? Yes. Um, we Now, we are different in that we are a cord blood. Um, patients and moms may have seen an option for... Uh, private donation, and there are a lot of companies that do offer private donation at whatever hospital you're at. They mail you a kit or mail it to the hospital. Um, We don't do that. Our focus is really on the best quality of cord blood unit possible. So, um, and that's a decision that I have made, so if people aren't happy about it, I'm sorry, Um, that I don't want to send out a box because the quality of those units won't be as good compared to when we do collection at a hospital where we're talking frequently and giving training to the nursing staff, to the physicians who are doing the collection, where we really have a good rapport um, with that hospital and we have all of the processes in place to make sure from even before mom gets there, everything is in place and everything will be done to the best possible quality. It sounds like it's simple ju- just to <laughs> take the blood from the umbilical cord, but there's a lot of science that went into exactly how and when to do that, right? Yes. And um, some of the things, so there's a lot of different steps. We do try to make it as simple as possible. Um, the simpler it is, the fewer steps can go wrong. But um, if the cord blood cord is not cleaned off before the needle is inserted, um, then you potentially introduce bacteria, and now that unit is contaminated and everything downstream is a waste. Um, we cannot put that into a patient um, who has no bone marrow. That We just can't do that. Um, if uh, the cord blood is drawn and we get you know, 20 ml, so it's a really small amount, it's a little quarter of cups worth, that makes everybody feel better, but that's not useful. That's not enough stem cells to actually be clinically useful. So even though everyone's gone through that and mom has gone through the donation process, and that's great, and we we would still want people to donate even if they can only get 20 mLs, 
we will find a different use for that, but it's not going to be able to be used to help someone who needs a bone marrow transplant. So really, a lot of our training uh, for our collection um, staff at both hospitals is make sure it's a large unit because that's the one that we can really use clinically to make the maximum impact on a patient. So since the Upstate Cord Blood Bank opened in 2017, mm-hmm. um, how many units have we accumulated since then? So we've got just over 600 so there's been just over 600 donations that have been made, um, which, if everyone's listening, thank you. <laughs> um, and of those units, not all of them were able to go through all the processing and be stored for potential transplants. Um, about a third of those we actually have stored frozen in our freezers. So what do you do with the others? So the other ones, uh, so again, any of them, any of them that are contaminated or if we don't have all of the paperwork done, we know that that will not be able to be used as a transplantable unit. If it's too small, um, so there's not gonna be enough stem cells, um, we can freeze those, and some of the ones that we have frozen, we know are small, but we do have other uses for the cord blood. Um, and this, this takes a little bit of explanation because I wanna make sure people understand this. Um, the cord blood, um, units that we are using, we meet all of the requirements of the FDA. This is a regulated blood product that can go for transplant. Uh, That means we have to meet a lot of these standards for the FDA to make sure that it is a useful unit, that it is a safe unit, that it is good quality. Um, And in order to do that, we have to do a lot of validations. And we have to not just say, yes, this freezing process will keep all the cells good. We have to thaw out some of those units and show that they are still viable and that we meet that criteria. We have to do it for every single one of our steps. So there is a number of units that we have to use in order to do these validations. Now, our preference is going to be using those units that we can't use for transplant. So the ones that are bacteria contaminated, we, we can still use that for some of our validations. Um, the ones that are too small, we can use those for some of our validations. Um, the ones that don't have paper, as long as we have a consent that we are allowed to use them, but they may not have filled out the paperwork saying, did they have a risk of infectious exposure? Mm-hmm. That's one of the requirements. Um, then we can't use that one for a transplant, but we can use that for validation. because it's still, it's still the same cells, so we can use those. Um, so we always want to use units that we can't use for transplant for those validations. Um, the, what, what about research? And that's the other use we can use for units that, no, again, we cannot use for transplant. We're going to divert those either to our internal use for validations or we will actually make them available for other researchers. Researchers right now locally, but we have had um, requests nationally and even internationally. There's been interest in using those units that, again, we can't, only the ones we can't use for transplant, um, using those units as a source of stem cells for increased research. And like you mentioned at the beginning, right now there's 80 diseases that could potentially be, we could potentially use cord blood for therapeutic benefit. There's probably more. And the way we find that out is by researching cord blood. And there have, that has to come from somewhere. We'd rather, again, use these units that are too small instead of throwing them out either using them for our validations or, sorry, or making them available for these researchers 
to maybe find a new use. And maybe in the future, we will find a use that uses those smaller units. And now in the future, those small units aren't just validations or research, but may have a therapeutic use. Now, we've heard about leukemia mm-hmm. and lymphomas of the blood cancers being treated mm-hmm. with um, bone marrow transplants, stem cell mm-hmm. transplants. Um, what other types of, di- are we just talking about different cancers or are there other yeah. diseases? There's actually other diseases and that's the coolest part. Um, it's dangerous asking me about this because I might go on all day. <laughs> <laughs> the, so the current, uh, according to the FDA, the only, the only currently FDA approved use is for bone marrow transplant. But in the research setting, there's some really cool data and we're, um, and under our research protocol, this can be used for other diseases. Um, this includes a lot of degenerative diseases. So many people, they, they may not ever be touched by a leukemia. They may not have one in their family. But almost everyone has some family member that has had neurologic decline, like Alzheimer's, or neurologic damage, like a traumatic brain injury, um, strokes, uh, neural core defects or neural core damage. Um, there is current research looking at autism, and all the families that are touched by autism. Um, one, there, uh, there's a researcher down at Duke that has done some awesome work on cerebral palsy. Um, that's, cerebral palsy is typically uh, damage due to low um, oxygen delivery to the brain of a baby at birth. Um, again, there's a lot of research on figuring out exactly what's happening. But um, that's a really... Um, difficult treatment for these patients because we have not really had anything we have lots of things to help them cope with their their disabilities due to cerebral palsy but there's never been a treatment that actually allowed their disabilities to get better well this researcher down at Duke Joan Kurtzberg has actually shown that patients who were transplanted for hematologic diseases who also had cerebral palsy their cerebral palsy got better. So going from patients who, um, they talk about different developmental tracks. Um, If someone with cerebral palsy is in a wheelchair, there is very small likelihood that they will ever be able to walk with crutches or walk unaided. Um, But Dr. Kurtzberg has actually had patients that were in wheelchairs and now we're walking with crutches or walking unaided. That is huge. Wow. We've never had yeah. anything that really made a, t- a type of change like this. Now, it's still research. It's still um, it, it's still only done under that research rubric, and there's a lot of steps in there. There's a lot of questions still to be answered. But that, even if none of the other diseases panned out, and there's a lot of them that are panning out really nicely, even if we found nothing else, that being able to offer that hope and offer that treatment to parents of patients with cerebral palsy is huge. Well, and even just thinking about donating cord blood, you know, Mm -hmm. you want to help a person, but wow, if you could Mm -hmm. contribute to advancing that, that's pretty amazing. Yes, it's it's awesome. Again, I could go on all day. There's so many different diseases and so much um, research that is really exciting. Um, Much of it is still not... FDA approved, so it's not ready for prime time, but boy, the future looks bright. Well, I want to make sure listeners know they can learn more information. There's a website, upstatecordbloodbank.org, and that's got all of the information. Um, I even saw there's a uh, 
the the forms that you have to fill out ahead of time, and those are they're pretty extensive. They're several pages. They are. They are. Um, but people can download them there and get a sense of what information you'll be collecting from them. And absolutely, and the um, the forms on there, our phone numbers list, our phone numbers on the website. Anyone has any questions at any time, give us a call. Um, we're happy to set up tours, and you can see the cord bank. Sometimes it becomes more real when you see it, and you can talk with myself, with my staff. We'd love to talk with people about this and just make sure everybody's comfortable with exactly what's going on. The questionnaires are extensive, and I apologize to everyone who has to fill them out, but we, we do not ask any questions for curiosity. It's all what's required. Um, we cannot list a unit without being able to answer these specific areas. And almost most of them relate to, is there any infection, is there any risk that this cord blood will transmit an infection, these horrible infections, HIV, um, mad cow disease, all these things. Somebody gets a, a transplant, the last thing they need is one of these right. horrible diseases. Right. Well, this has been very interesting. I want to let listeners <laughs> know they can learn more about the Upstate Cord Blood Bank at uh, www.upstatecordbloodbank.org. Um, so thank you, Dr. Elkins, for being here. Sure. My guest has been Dr. Matthew Elkins from Upstate's Cord Blood Bank. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. <laughs>